Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So we're going to talk about walking. Yeah, right. you know, it's funny. I was just walking today. I did a... Um, beautiful walk with my wife and my six-year-old daughter, Sophia. In Stockbridge, Massachusetts, I took a walk up uh, Monument Mountain. Huh. The Monument Mountain Trail and had great views of the Berkshires and could see the, uh, the Catskills as well on the horizon there. Nice. So I was thinking about uh, Henry David Thoreau and walking. And I don't know what, what you know about this uh, this essay, but it was first delivered at the Concord Lyceum on uh, April 23rd, and the year was 1851. Hmm. And this um, this uh, essay or lecture was uh, was re- redacted several times between that reading in 1860, and over the redaction, parts were extracted from his um, Henry David Thoreau's earlier journals and. In total, Thoreau read this piece 10 times, Mm. more than any of his other lectures. Oh, that's Mm. interesting. It was a a greatest hit. It it first (laughs) appeared in print, by the way, uh, in 1862. It was published um, in the Atlantic Monthly. And this publication occurred shortly after his death. Okay. After his death in 1862. Yeah, like a couple of months. So one thing I wanted to to um, interject. So regarding his process, he was probably similar to Emerson, that he, you know, as he read, he edited, so he fine-tuned it. Like most of Emerson's essays were rehearsed, you know, on the lecture circuit, incubated through. Uh, yeah, and sort of tuned up, and yeah, yeah. So kind of interesting because that's a sort of like a farmer-like thing to do, you know, going back and mm-hmm. cultivating. I know Allen Ginsberg um, did similar with uh, many of his poems in terms of changing them through recitation. And I wonder if he had uh, Thoreau and Emerson uh, in his mind. Yeah. Hmm. Did he but, write while he walked? <laughs> I don't know if he did much walking. I'm, I'm sure he did. Uh, but Thoreau considered uh, walking one of the seminal works. And he liked it so much that he wrote um, the following. I, I found this quotation. It's great of the lecture. And I quote, I regard this as a sort of introduction to all that I may write hereafter. Hmm. End quote. So this is um, this is at the, the beating heart, the pillar and ground of his uh, his worldview and um, sense of things. And um, so does that, that does that predate Walden? Uh, so this, 51, he did the Walden excursion. What was the year? I forget. Yeah, me too. You know, this is something we should know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to assume that, um, I think Walden, I'm going to assume Walden was already published. That's what I'm thinking. Published That's what in I 53. Think. Yeah. Uh, he didn't publish much when he, you know, he only did Walden and uh, the walks, you know, the very two walk volumes of walks. That he did the uh, what's it called the Mary Mac and Concord Rivers mm-hmm. like he was this famous line of his is something like I am lucky 
to have a library with 600 volumes, 452 of which I wrote myself, because he self-published A Week on the Merrimack and Concord Rivers. I think that's the name of his first book. And nobody bought it, so he had 450 volumes of it in his house. Good insulation. Yeah, whatever he used it for. I, I have a friend um, who's an Americanist, and he teaches in the University of California system. And I asked him about walking, and he um, sent me a quote. Huh? He said that uh, he sees it as an anti-imperialist and anti-industrialist manifesto. And as the mid-19th century version of Ram Dass's imperative, to turn tune in and drop out. Yeah. Well, actually, that was uh, Timothy Leary said that, really. Timothy not, Leary said that, not Ram Dass. I believe, I mean, Ram Dass was like Timothy Leary's assistant, but I don't know. Tune in. Turn on, drop, drop out. out. Oh, it's tune yeah. in, turn on, and drop out. Why, what did your friend say? I think I misquoted it as turn on, tune in, and drop out. I'm sorry, I mistyped it. I think one crucial thing. my amateur, my amateur. <laughs> This is ancient history now, these uh, ancient hippie slogans. Yeah, I think one crucial detail is that it was the, the essay that was published as Walking was synonymous um, with, the, with the title The Wild. Yes, I, that's right. I, I read that. That was kind of interchangeable, yeah. And, um, you know, I think the two things are, are linked, obviously. Mm. Um, and I would have suggested you know, broadly speaking, to Thoreau, that I would have named it Walking the Wild. Walking huh. the Wild, you know? Walking the Wild, I like that. Yeah, because it then sort of has a little bit of assonance with Talking the Wild. Hmm. Yeah. My, friend, yeah, I mean, my friend also mentioned the Civil War, that it, it, it's really important to think about this um, essay and lecture as a guide to the perplexed and the troubled 1850s. Mm -hmm. That it was um, Henry David Thoreau's attempt to um, offer some contemplative space, um, a, remi a reminder to dwell in the, um, in the, in, in the inner life um, as a response to the tumultuous political problems leading up to the Civil War. Hmm. Well, I feel emphatically that it certainly talks to the 20 teens. Um, huh. It has the same uh, quality of elixir and antidote, and also of instigation. Hmm. Well, now, I'm wondering yeah. what you know. I, I'm wondering if it's uh, what more background we want to do, and whether we should just go through it. That's and different. each of us sound out as we hit um, highlights. Huh. But I think the key thing is to point out what is he really saying about walking? Like there's a, the first third, first, um, I'd say 1500 words. And then the rest of the essay is a sort of morphology or a kind of calling to something behind walking, lurking. Yeah. I mean, the way I saw it, is uh, and I didn't finish reading the essay. I must confess. It's long. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's is very that long. he he's talking about walking and then he says, well, you know, typically I find he kind of seems like he consults his intuition and his intuition tells him always, just about always, to walk southwest. And then he starts thinking about going west. 
walking towards the wilderness, you know, because he's in America and the wilderness is out in the West. And then he starts thinking more and more about civilization moving to the West, how civilization moves westward. And he starts thinking more about that kind of wildness out there that he's walking towards. And then that kind of takes over the essay. It's like, at first, he's just walking. And then he's thinking, well, where am I walking? And then he's like, I'm walking deeper and deeper into the woods. You know, something like that. Yeah. That's how I took it, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you see see that in the decisions he makes, right, that he becomes um, increasingly, you know, lost in this wilderness and open to it. And um, Hmm. the essay opens up in an interesting way into the non-rational and to the wilderness of the mind. I mean, I was thinking he's a transcendentalist. So even the essay transcends itself. Yeah, exactly. The essay goes beyond walking into the transcendentalism of walking. (laughs) I, I agree with that. And yet at the same time, I believe, you know, if you think of Frederick Turner and uh, his thesis of Western expansion, the frontier thesis that he articulates in the significance of uh, the frontier in American history. And this this what Frederick Turner pointed toward is already here in Thoreau. And it also echoes uh, Spengler's decline in, uh, excuse me. um, Decline of the West, isn't it? Decline of the West, yeah. And also appears in Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. But, you know, totally interesting that I wonder if there was any sort of four uh, bearers of this thesis. All right. Well, I I remember hearing that. Manifest destiny, I guess. I I think about this a lot for some reason that, my understanding is in the 18th century, Virginia had had just declared that its borders, its western border, was like the Pacific Ocean, that that Virginia just continued eternally across the entire continent. So I think, I mean, I think Manifest Destiny is a lot of what the Revolutionary War was about. If you ask me, I mean, that's my thinking. Who's going to control the West? Or, you know, what my mentor, Peter Lambor Wilson, calls land speculation. He was saying all the founding fathers, to use that archaic term, uh, they were all land speculators. They all wanted to make money by buying land cheap in the West, which would be like somewhere like Ohio or West Virginia or something, and selling it. So, and the British didn't care. They didn't want, uh, they were not in a real estate scam. So that's why we had to break away from our mother country to um, make big money for our um, kind of proto-capitalist leaders. Yeah, (laughs) it was was a lot of uh, land speculation, total antithesis to the vision that Thoreau lays out in this essay, and also a certain amount of mobster and control and syndicate and monopolies those were the Hmm. two significant ways of making um, Hmm. a fortune in america revolutionaries of boston for example the boston tea party that was all about control of the tea market Hmm. Hmm. thing is shouldn't we just go start from the beginning yeah okay so i mean just like pounding through what did you guys notice? Like, you know, what points do we want to bring out? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the first yeah. things that hit me, this is not right at the beginning, but pretty close, 
maybe the seventh paragraph is where Thoreau says he goes walking four hours a day at least. Yeah, right. I remember that. And it will <laughs> and it will commonly and commonly more than that. And it's like, whoa, this guy really walked an enormous. He was really a walker who also wrote rather than a, a writer who also walked. <laughs> Well, I think uh, some of those miles, it'd be interesting to find out, were compassed by his work as a surveyor, mm. which inherently meant, you know, you walked out into the land. And he does mention that in the the essay, in the lecture. Oh, yeah. Right. Th- there's a moment when he's reflecting um, on something in nature and the context Ox. that he's out um, surveying land. Yeah. He's surveying, you know, I think, in a neighbor, neighbor's swamp. The bogs, yeah. These oh, that's bogs. right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he gives a passionate defense of uh, wetlands about, yeah. you know, 200 years before anybody uh, thought about that idea. Right, and before Camille Paglia's, uh, you know, her thesis of the Thonian. The what? Thonian. What's that? Yeah, it has to do with the primordial muck of things. Oh, yeah. And a female fecundity. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. What is it uh, that uh, the God says to Job? Uh, Where were you when I tamed the Leviathan? Right. The Leviathan is kind of this uh, primordial, often I think considered a female creature that lived like at the bottom of the sea. It yeah. was kind of related, I think, to like a chthonic creature. I think. Yeah, and spiders and snakes. <laughs> So one that thing ain't I what noticed. it takes to love me. The the thing I wanted to point out. This is the thing I wanted to point out. All right. Is this idea? Um, he seems to posit another uh, population within America. You know, very early on, he speaks of not equestrians or chevaliers, not ritters or riders, but walkers. A still more ancient and honorable class, I trust. The chivalric and heroic spirit, which once belonged to the rider, seems now to reside in, or perchance to have subsided into the walker. Not the <laughs> not the knight, but walker errant. He is a sort of fourth estate, outside of church, state, and people. He would add this fourth estate of walkers. And I think that's incredibly significant. Mm. Um, Sort of the Woody Guthrie, the drifter, the down and outer, the vagrant. The wayfarer. Yeah. And and also this idea of America as being a place in which one may wander, where one isn't Mm. fixed, where one isn't Mm. identified, or, you know, the capacity... Uh, to get lost. Hmm. Hmm. I love it. That's funny because I was also thinking of Woody Guthrie and I looked up a couple of his songs. Uh, you know, there's a famous verse that's left out of uh, hmm. this land was made for you and me. It has different forms, but here's the one. As I went walking, I saw a sign there and on the sign it said, no trespassing. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah, bravo. 
So the uh, this idea, because I think, oh yeah, I found that very interesting where Thoreau talks about uh, how right now the land is, uh, what does he say? The walker enjoys comparative freedom because the uh, most of the land is not owned still at that point. And he says at some point. Pretty early on, yeah. Yeah, possibly the day will come when it will be partitioned off into so-called pleasure grounds in which a few will take a narrow and exclusive pleasure only when fences shall be multiplied and man traps and other engines invented to confine men. And uh, you know about man traps? I started thinking about man traps. You know, those were like a real thing. And I think they're still legal in England between dusk and dawn. So they're like an act of kind of like those uh, animal traps that Bugs Bunny would get caught in. There, I mean, there's different types of man traps, but these were real things in the 18th century in England where uh, there'd be like uh, these um, uh, jaws, metal jaws. You'd step into them and they would like, you know, cut so your leg off. To discourage poachers and things yeah, exactly. like that. And, and this um, was the uh, common lands wars, the, the wars over the common lands. Which, uh, which right. All across England, yeah. Again in the 16th century. Yeah, right. With the closure of the clearances, yeah, what they call at least what that's what they told us they were called in Scotland when they sort of kicked people off their own land to uh, Ireland, to Northern Ireland. A lot of them. It was in Scotland. Arrow, that that um that paragraph you read aloud is so prescient of yeah. modern times in terms of the privatization of land and. This, and this even of oligarchs. You know, you know, it's interesting because I think it was also tied up with Woody Guthrie's death. Um, that at his death, Arlo Guthrie secured those lyrics or read those lyrics. Um, they concluded a biography of Woody Guthrie that I read at some point back there hmm. Hmm. in the forests of my mind. So I was going to say um, something that really intrigued me about the entire lecture, about the essay Walking or the Wild. Walk in the wild, yeah. Walk in the wild is that um, in it we we encounter Thoreau's um, attempt to to uh, respond to the tyranny of industrial time, mm, mm. industrial time that he's advocating um, different registers of time, mm, cosmological mm. time, geological time, emotional time, mm. uh, but most centrally um, walking time. Mm, yeah how the temporal um, opens up in a, a new sort of way, a way that um, does not um, lend itself to fitting into the digital time, mechanical time, industrial time. And I have this quotation here, this paragraph that I just love, that I think captures this reflection on the temporal and these comp competing expressions of time that he felt so acutely in the mid-19th century. Some do not walk at all. Others walk in the highways. A few walk across lots. Roads are made of horses and men of business. I do not travel in them much, comparatively, because I am not in a hurry to get to any tavern or grocery or livery stable or depot to which they lead. I am a good horse to travel, but not from choice a roadster. The landscape painter uses the figures of men to mark a road. He would not make the use of my figure. 
Mm-hmm. I went out into nature, such as the old prophets and poets. You may name it America, but it is not America. Neither America, America's Vestusis, nor Columbus, nor the rest were the discoverers of it. There is a truer amount of it in mythology than in any history of America so-called that I have seen. But I just, I, I, I'm really struck by this paragraph and how um, Thoreau doesn't want to occupy time with some teleological notion of where he's going, fixed destination, you know. Well, the the one thing I would posit out of this is also that perhaps Thoreau's reaching toward primordial time, mm-hmm. which from our perspective as, as uh, you know, these um, biped creatures, what did Aristotle call us? Is... <laughs> no, it was Milton that called us what forked beings or something. But the uh, primordial time we measure through walking. That's what we've done. Mm-hmm. That's what we've done since the beginning. But he also kind of talks about the movement of civilization west. I don't have the quote in front of me, but he's he's saying, I guess you know, I guess this was something people believed back then that. Civilization started in Sumeria, maybe, and moved to Greece, and then to Rome, and then to England, and then to us. Well, and to, yeah, yeah, yeah. To circle back to uh, to that to that point, it would be uh, this quotation: "The man of the old world sets out upon his way, leaving the highlands of Asia. He descends from station to station towards Europe." Each of his steps is marked by a new civilization superior to the preceding, by a greater power of development. Arrived at the Atlantic, he pauses on the shore of this unknown ocean, the bounds of which he knows not, and turns upon his footprints for an instant. This idea of turning upon his footprints for an instant is... um, is interesting you know it's the glance it's that sort of glance back and the power of the glance but also that's the pure articulation of this idea of civilizations passing from the east to the west but i think we've run out of waves man i found myself thinking well maybe civilization has now moved to china and it just maybe thoreau was right and now it skipped over the Pacific Ocean, and now it's China's turn, which is kind of where it started. <laughs> yeah, that's why Jesus will now return. So, yeah. how, how about you guys in today Wall? in the day of awe? The, the yeah. question, which I, I wanted to just go back to this primordial time, the idea of real the time that that um, that Thoreau's projecting is also collaborative time. It's hmm. not imposed time. When you're walking and you're walking in the forest, it's a collaboration because you need to be in a situation where you can hold on to branches sometimes, climb Hmm. rocks, find Hmm. ways through. So it's a different kind of time. Can you dig that? I really like that a lot. It is a collaboration. In fact, he begins one paragraph, if I can find it. reflecting on how the things that he believes are trees and um, hmm. you know, the spirit of that collaboration are trees and grass. Also, it's at one point, he just very uh, kind of 
in passing mentions the fact that he's often with someone else when he walks. Like companion, he talks about a companion. Yeah, that's, like that's the, uh, none other than Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ah, is that who he would usually walk with or always walk? Yeah, with? they had a very super duper close relationship. And then sometimes Hawthorne would be along, but huh. Hawthorne and Thoreau didn't see eye to eye. They didn't get along <laughs> all that well. But often they would walk in silence, actually, not talking. Huh. Yeah, but it was, it's it's a very solitary sounding essay. Like, if you were reading this essay, except for that one allusion to having a companion, you would assume he was by himself. Right, because the emphasis is on his inner life, right? His ruminations, yeah. his quiet ruminations. But I'm just saying maybe there was a kind of collaborative element to it that he's not quite uh, mentioning, you know, because yeah. two people walking together is really different than one person walking alone, or at least in my life it is. Sam, when you mentioned collaboration, were you thinking about a deep collaboration with the ecosystem, with the meadow and the human yeah. life, the flora? Definitely. And I believe that that's what Thoreau is also pointing toward. Hmm. Hey, listen to this. I found the um, sentence that I um, was searching for. Um, I'm going to quote um, from Thoreau. I quote, I believe in the forest and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows. We require an infusion of hemlock, spruce or arbor vitae in our tea. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Some of the sentences are just exquisite. Yeah, that's, I, very, that's very Thonian, if I may. You know, hemlock, <laughs> I believe, isn't that poison, like a form of poison, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like a tasting, a tasting the bog. I think there's two hemlocks. Like yeah, one is the one that killed Socrates, and the other one is a tree. They're not the same. Because Seems you to me, my drink, wife told me that. You can drink right, hemlock right. tea, right? People drink hemlock tea. And it has medicinal properties, no? That must be the second type. I think so. But I wouldn't um, experiment with either, not knowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, a kind of weird flicker between poison and medicine, mm -hmm. perhaps. How about you guys? Um, do you do a lot of walking chronically, um, weekly, or not so much right now in your lives? I mean, I do this kind of walking. He's talking. You know, I want to say this thing I've been meaning to say from the beginning of this conversation is like, I just think it's one of the things that sort of strikes me as strange about this essay is that it's called walking and that I realize that I consider walking as to walk along a road and I consider walking through a forest to be hiking. Yeah, that's like I do too. In the modern world, we no longer use the word walking if you're surrounded by uh, nature. That's not called walking anymore. That's now called hiking. When do you think that shift occurred? Interesting, right? Yeah, well, I, to look into that. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I have a you know patch of woods over here, you know, over behind me out there. And I don't, I don't say taking a hike. I say taking a walk. I'm going to go take a walk, actually. Oh. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't use hiking so much. Hmm. I always consider often. hiking where you put a pack on your back. Then you're hiking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're humping a load. It's different. 
That's because you were in the Boy Scouts, weren't you? <laughs> I spent a certain amount of time in the wilderness when I was little. Or not not wilderness. Very different. But, you know, backwoods. But you yeah. weren't in the Boy Scouts? Yeah. The, the one thing I wanted to say, I wanted to um, point out something about the nature of the wild. I would point out this one thing about wilderness and wild and I'm just gonna I'm thumbing around take your time maybe I'll sing another Woody Guthrie song while you're searching because there is a Woody Guthrie song that they sing in my synagogue in the Woodstock Jewish congregation Woody Guthrie um, his uh, wife was Jewish and his in-laws were spoke Yiddish and apparently, uh, Woody Guthrie wrote a lot of songs uh, about Jewish topics and in Yiddish. And this one that they sing at my synagogue, it remi- it's related to like the second paragraph, I don't know, the third paragraph of this essay, where uh, Thoreau is talking about sauntering. And mm-hmm. he says, uh, why is it called sauntering? Because pilgrims who were going to the Holy Land, or I think he says hustlers who were pretending to be uh, pilgrims going to the Holy Land would would walk the roads of Europe begging, and they would say, "We're going to the Saint Terre, the Saint Holy Terre. Land." Saint yeah. Holy Terre Land. That became the word saunter. I have a feeling that's uh, not a true etymology. Yeah. Etymology. Yeah. But, I believe uh, maybe it's a false etymology. It's um, you know, there's the whole thing around the flaneur as well that's sort of contemporaneous with Walden's uh, walking. And that's yeah, kind but, of the Thoreau's... echo, you know, from the other side, from the old world. Yeah, the flaneur, flaneur the in wandering Paris. minstrel or poet, the French uh, figure. The, fl- the flaneur is that a... Troubadour, yeah, definitely. Right, but they're walking roads. But, but Thoreau is kind of spiritualizing yeah. it and saying, well, the whole world is holy land. And so everyone who saunters is walking to the Holy Land. And that's like this song Woody Guthrie wrote. It's called Holy Ground. Take off, take off your shoes. This place you're standing is holy ground. Take off, take off your shoes. The spot you're standing is holy ground. These words I heard in my burning bush. This place you're standing is holy ground. I heard my fiery voice speak to me. This spot you're standing is holy ground. Hey, nice job. I like thanks, that. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. yeah. It's Moses, you get it? You know, Moses, the, the voice of God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And he says, God says, you know, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And then, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie is saying the same thing Thoreau is saying, which is like it's, Everywhere is holy ground. Everywhere you look, this is like the American anarchist, you know, spirituality. The fourth estate, the calling of the fourth estate. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I would say is, did he write these words I heard in my burning bush? 
or is it well, in? You know, these are the lyrics I got from um, from the internet. Uh, there's a there's a big difference. These words I heard <laughs> in my burning bush. Ah, this is before everything was in my burning bush. <laughs> okay, so this is where I wanted to um to take things is um you know this is this is our friends um big you know call is the the west of which I speak mm. is but another name for the wild. So mm. returning to that that thesis that was later elaborated by Turner and Spengler, um, it, it named for it the wild. So this is the West. And what I have been preparing to say is, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Hmm. What do you and mean just by having constructed Just having constructed that sentence, in wildness is the preservation of the world. That's a profound and deep, a big, heavy, beautiful stone dropped in deep into ourselves and into our experience, I believe. Yeah, it's very interesting. And also, you know... image of the West is present in a beautiful sentence at the conclusion of the um, penultimate paragraph, and I quote... The west side of every wood and rising ground gleamed like the boundary of Elysium, and the sun on our back seemed like a gentle herdsman driving us home at evening. So we saunter toward the Holy Land. There it is. <laughs> yeah, the sun is God. Till one, one point shall shine more brightly than ever he has done. Reminds me of the end of The Great Gatsby. <laughs> oh, man. Good play. That that does have the echo of the wild, you know. Yeah, sure, sure, that's a very good. Uh, yeah. Hmm. The the one thing I wanted to point out is that um, this phrase in wildness is the preservation of the world is is the motto of the Sierra Club. Oh yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is um, that um, in terms of the wild, and hmm. then and then wilderness. Is the is the word bewilder <laughs> is is a back foundation of <clears throat> from wilderness <clears throat> and to bewilder is to is to cause one to become lost <clears throat> and to or to be led into the wilderness <clears throat> <clears throat> and what what I wanted to say is that it would be my thesis that Thoreau is a bewilderer. <laughs> <laughs> you mean he bewilders the reader, like? No, I, I think that he is calling people to the wild, mm. calling people into the wilderness, which, as you've pointed out, um, Andrew, is a transcendental trope mm. Mm. for um, for the uh, the divine. Mm. Sure, but it's an interesting kind of take on the divine. It it. I'm I'm always reading Freud, and you know, in wildness is the preservation of the world is almost like saying to me a little bit like saying in the unconscious is the preservation of the world. Like the wildness is that sort of I mean because Thoreau is a great writer, so he is understanding that the word wildness has a lot of meanings, and one of the meanings is that people can be wild, and that there's a wildness inside of us 
And he seems to be saying to return to that wildness, which like kind of like what you're saying, Sam, there's an edge, like the unconscious for Freud is almost a kind of, I don't know what, holy spiritual soul almost, but also a place with all the fears and terrors and everything we repress. Like it's a, it's an, like a swamp almost, you know. You know what I would call it? I would call it the heart. Huh. What do you mean the heart? I mean that the subconscious, you know, Freudian subconscious is mm. heart. And that, you know, what our task is as bewilderers <laughs> is, to, is to bring your consciousness down to your heart and get mm. into its electromagnetic rhythm, which is mm. A, mm. a far stronger, mm. deeper resonance. Well, I mean, in, the, in, that, in, that, in that quote I just read, he, he, he writes about how the, uh, when you're out in the wilderness, the wild, eventually the sun is going to be the herdsman who leads you home. Hmm. Hmm. Leads you to that center, that that uh, that certain mm-hmm. center. But also kind of literally, because it's like the sun gets low. I mean, if you ever go hiking, walking, the sun gets low. Back then, you didn't have a flashlight. <laughs> time to get home, you know. Get home, right? T- time to turn around. Yeah, because yeah, the, how important the sun is. Because I've been in those kind of situations many times, obviously, as all of us have where, you know, the sun is getting low and it's sort of also directing you. It's also orienting you within your, you know, local bewilderment. Yeah, because once it gets low, it's easier to see what direction it's setting in. Whereas it's the middle of the sky, you can't really take a direction from it. The, The one thing I would point out is this idea of bewilder is also to get lost, is this capacity to get lost. Mm. And yeah. even, as he points out at some point, this idea of the 10-mile radius, mm. this idea that you should know the woods or, you know, know your terrain within 10 miles, that that's a human radius, was, is an interesting thing that but he posits. My memory is that he says something like, there's an infinite number of paths you can take within a 10-mile radius. Like right. he sees it almost as a kind of, local infinity hmm. that that is available to you which is a super duper interesting cool thing yeah yeah that's the space necessary for consciousness to flower the 10 miles you mean yeah, that's how i'm imagining it you know at least that sort of radius of space to wander around in to get lost and to be bewildered by in order it was another to, another yeah. thing i wanted to say is like there's one point in the essay, like, you know, I know nothing about Derrida, except I saw this movie once called Derrida that was about Derrida. And he said, uh, you never have to search for a place. Uh, you never have to deconstruct a, a work of art because it will deconstruct itself. And um, there's a point where he says, there's a point where he seems very regretful about the fact that you have to go back that he says half the walk is just returning and it seems like he he wants to to he wants to light keep out going forever i know what i was going to say you that, want like, to like uh, and that's yeah. what he wants to do there's a point where he says something like 
Sometimes I'm walking and I'm not walking. I'm walking, but I still have my house inside my head. And oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, like, so what yeah. is walking? You know, it's like, yeah, we're talking about walking. He's talking about walking. It turns out walking does not mean walking. <laughs> walking is some kind of state of consciousness yeah. that you can't always be in while you're while you're physically walking. And I know from my own experiences hiking that that's spot on. Yeah. During that first leg, I'm still very much hmm. back in my life, uh, back civilization, you know, caught up with local concerns. But there's a specific psychometabolic mm-hmm. moment when when something opens up mm-hmm. and it, um, mm-hmm. all of all of that falls away for the remainder of the walk i mm-hmm. you just it's so true to life it's so it's so it's so familiar yeah I, I love that man and i love also the you know infinitude of ways of walking mm-hmm. um, you know like within that 10 mile radius the the quote i think and I had it marked as, um, I wrote, default mode network for the mind. And this is a, this is a very clear articulation of that state in, in Henry David Thoreau's essay here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of, let, me, let me read it to you. This is because I think this would, the thought of some work will run in my mind, and I'm not where my body is. I am out of my senses. In my walks, I would fain return to my senses. What business have I in the woods if I am thinking of something out of the woods? I suspect (laughs) myself and cannot help a shudder. And when I find myself so implicated, even in what are called good works, for this may sometimes happen. Hmm. So, you know... the continuous bag of worries and of past and the future that, you know, sometimes our automatic, um, autonomic mind state enters into, it seems to me clearly articulated here by Thoreau. Yeah, I think and it's just, I mean, and it's right by this within a 10 mile circle, Sparrow. Oh, interesting. That's just below that. Because hmm. I think this is where it's at for us now because there is no more wilderness. Mm-hmm. In the in the literal sense, so mm-hmm. we all have to build our little ten mile nuclei. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking like he's kind of saying there's two types of thinking: there's indoor thinking and there's outdoor thinking. And sometimes you're outdoors and you're still thinking indoors. You're still thinking of your life indoors, and you have to what he calls his work, which might mean his writing. And uh, you know, it's like you have to learn how to think outdoors. Whatever, whatever that means, you know, I mean, I, I feel like he has his own spirituality that I I don't want, even though these guys like him and uh, Emerson seem to be very influenced and inspired by reading the Bhagavad Gita. I went to the uh, uh, Thoreau show at the Morgan Library recently, I don't know, within the last year, and they had his copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Pretty oh, wow. wild to yeah. see. <laughs> And yet, it's not the Bhagavad Gita. He's not rewriting the Bhagavad Gita. He's got his own very American philosophy that has something to do with wilderness, with escaping Europe, with escaping... You know, the Bhagavad Gita is not about (laughs) going into the woods. That is not... Not about the 165... uh, 
trees over 30 feet or something. Yeah, yeah. This is a call for a, a peripatetic school of American philosophy. Mm. One, you know, the American wandering philosopher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an indigenous, it's an indigenous strain, this fourth estate. Mm. You know, I would pause it. Although in this essay, he only mentions the original people, uh, um, you know, once. Oh, and really? Sort of glancingly. Yeah. And yeah. Not, yeah, it's interesting because he's what, still what, in a kind of um, European headset. You're referring to the one mention of Africa? No, no, of the Native Indian. Americans. He uses the word Indian <clears throat> at and one, one point. One mention, one mention of Africans. Yeah. In Australia, the, the weird jag into Australia, you know, just the, <laughs> uh, the, the one thing I wanted to also point out, just because it's a great um, quote, short, um, just below where he introduces the rationale for this essay regarding in wildness, you know, he writes, uh, give me a wildness whose glance no civilization can endure. <laughs> that is so great. It's almost like the um, the face of of God in the in Jewish, huh? Yeah, picture right? Or or uh -huh. uh, the Greek gods manifesting mm. to mortals, right? What is it? The gorgon that turns your your you to stone if you yeah, see it. Yeah, you become petrified by the the glance of the gorgon, the, the dreaded gorgon. Mm. Yeah, mm. and also which is also kind of a wild creature. On, on this day, on the on the day of of ah, I would also the walls of Jericho weren't they brought down through the sounding of a trumpet? Right, yeah, the trumpet that I listened to today. I went to Rosh Hashanah services and in uh, Windsor Terrace in Brooklyn at the Chabad, you know, with the Lubavitchers. And boy, did they blow that ram's horn! That shofar. I've never heard it. Yeah, the shofar which is a ram's horn, which I believe is the instrument that brought down the walls of Jericho. <laughs> Hallelujah. A, kind of a stirring sound, weird and stirring, primordial song. Can I want it to be a wild song? Kind of wild, yeah. Um, maybe I'm stating the obvious, but I, when, you know, reflecting on Thoreau's walking, I can't help but think of the degree to which um, smartphone, cell phone technology occludes this sort of collaboration with the, the mm. system. Um, um, mm. Even on my walk up Monument Mountain today, uh, so many people walking past on the way down were, were on their phones, um, out on Instagram, taking photographs, texting. Oh, yeah. You know, it um, really, mm. uh, really makes it very challenging the type of um, deep ecological collaboration that Thoreau writes about. And Thoreau thinks it's so central to human health, right? Hmm. A lot yeah, of suffering I, I, out there on the trail, huh, brother? Yeah. A lot of iPhones. Yeah. You know? I was thinking, uh, I, I was published in, not to boast, but I was published in some New Age magazine about five years ago. It's called, like, the New England... Journal of Holistic Living or something. And there was this article about forest bathing. Forest bathing, you ever hear of it? It's like kind of like new, newish, new age fad, Japanese in origin. It's a translation of some 
Japanese phrase. And uh, the idea is it's all been studied scientifically that the more time you spend in the forest, the less you are prone to depression, the lower your heart rate is, uh, you know, the better your respiration is. Like, you know, it, it's all been quantified by these Japanese scientists. And that's why you should spend, you know, at least X amount of time a day forest bathing. And I, there's something about this uh, phrase that really appealed to me. And now I often think of myself when I go for a hike in the woods around here as going forest bathing. It's a lovely idea. Yeah. But the thing that I associate bathing with is you get naked. Yeah, I don't think this is uh, necessarily naked. naked. Well, I mean, I don't mean necessarily taking off clothes, although, you know, oh, I see what you mean. feeling or having that sense of being in the woods and being that uh, vulnerable and permeable. Um, yeah, it, it might be something close, cause close to what Thoreau was talking about. Because when I think I'm going forest bathing, I feel like I do kind of like open my pores in some like metaphorical sense. I go into the woods and it's like, yeah, I'm going to really feel the forest, you're gonna you know, uh, you're, vibrations. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, it, and because where I live, there's a forest behind my house. So I, you know, sometimes, you know, just for five minutes, I'll go back behind the house and stand in this like uh, little carpeted um, moss uh, shelter, you know, kind that's dais. What's that? Is it like a dais? Well, it is a little bit raised. Yeah. And I sometimes look out at my house, you know, it's maybe 50 feet behind my house. And sometimes uh -huh. I look up the hill from there and, and there's a tree that I talk to that gives me kind of advice. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I'll just do a little forest bathing just in between editing my essays in the morning, often. <laughs> it sounds like a, an important part of your day. I, 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 I love doing that sort of thing. Yeah, it is, you know, a, sort of a blessing. And then when I go, and often I feel that the trees are like literally blessing me, come to think of it, even though I sort of don't even believe in blessing. And, um, and I mean, the and, uh, one thing I would say also is that it, from the conventional sense of collaborating, which would yeah. be working with somebody else, like writing some piece of mm. uh, work or something, right? Yeah. Is that the, the tree is participating in your writing. You yeah. know, it's actually having an effect on your writing. Definitely. These trees, there's two trees, I think, that are, I can't tell with what exactly is talking to me. And I don't really hear it in words. But these trees in my backyard, they seem very concerned with my literary career. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's an odd thing about them. Do they that, talk to each other? I mean, really, obviously they do, subcutaneously, you know, through the, uh, through the forest floor, the yeah. trees are in touch through the mycenium or whatever, you know. Right. That's what that movie Avatar is about. How all right. the trees in the whole world are kind of talking to each other through their roots. If, uh, it's funny because like there's leave it alone. I think it could happen again. You know, the whole earth could become. Oh, I see. You know, connected in a different way if we didn't interfere. You know, cut all these lines of communication.
I mean, the trees seem to be saying to me that it's it's there already. It's not we we're like a little event to them. <laughs> you know, it's not like we're a big problem to them. The you trees know? are the real inhabitants of this earth. You know, yeah, being I mean, they're sort of keeping us alive while we are cutting them down. So they have the superior position, really. <laughs> but anyway, one of these trees is like more kind of interest. Actually, the one of the trees always tell me to study, kind of obsessed with this idea of study. And then the other tree is more like spiritual and just like you are great. The other one is more just handing out blessings to me. That's that's how they but whether they talk to each other. So it's like a like a couple almost, you know, the way like there's a division of labor with, with a husband and wife. You know, it's a little bit do like you, that. Do you feel that there's an aspect in which your marriage is in any way mirrored or um, in a relationship with their ship? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, we're we're, it's all happening right next to each other. My wife and I are in the house 50 feet from them. So sure. I, I've never thought about it that way. But I mean, my wife is very tree-like. She doesn't really talk much. You know, she kind of exists on some kind of... And, you know, she's a complete animal psychic. So when she's around any animal, she immediately understands everything about the animal. Wow. And I include human beings. No, not at all. She has no understanding. Human beings to her are opaque, the way animals are opaque to me. How hey. do you characterize your relationship to yourself? Ha! My relationship to myself. The word yeah. bemused comes out. Can I can I point out something for a moment about Henry David Thoreau? Oh yeah. Uh, based upon Sparrow, your um your story about your, your wife as an animal psychic. I was struck by the fact, and granted I may have read the essay um, a little bit quickly, but I was nonetheless <laughs> struck by the fact that there are very few animals. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I would say almost zero. Uh, at this cow. moment, I don't have a clear recollection of a single mm. wild animal, which, uh-huh. you know, made me on some level revisit the essay and think about it um through a lens of doubt what do you mean doubt well i mean to what degree is um i just think uh, how much was he actually out there you know you know you know is this an uh, outdoor thinking indoors or uh, <laughs> no, I, I just wondered about the, the absence of non-human animals. I was just struck by it. It felt it felt conspicuous. I don't know what it means. It's where um, the uh, it's where the essay deconstructs itself. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's having fun. You know, I think Walden and also the, the journals are replete with uh, animal animal, you know, deep reference. And, you know, he was a big scientist, actually. Well, Tim, yeah, I think um, a lot of did a lot of drawing. As you pointed out, I think the the, the 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 central wilderness in this this essay, this lecture, is the internal one, the, the psychic wilderness. Hence, the absence of animals. I think um, it's a very psychological, it's a, um, essay on consciousness, the world mm. consciousness. But yeah, I, like, among other things, I would say among other things. Among other things. Yeah, yeah. Then I would. Then I'm hip to that for sure. Yeah. 
Can we? I, I have to go soon. Well, you know what? I'm Andrew, having a blast. You still haven't. Like I, I have lots of things to say. All right, let's Me say too. some more. So this is part one then, and we have to do part two. I mean, there's this the whole essay. It's a, it's a, it's a gold mine. It's like you know we could spend uh, the rest of our lives talking about this yeah. essay. Seems you know, like a good idea. At some point, I'd love to. I'd love it to actually talk. does sound yeah. A good idea. Can I just say one thing about? I mean, I just wanted this one thing I've been meaning to say uh, for the last half hour, and I just want to say it before we then we can end, as far as I'm concerned. That uh, uh, exhibition I went to at the Morgan Library about Thoreau, they had Thoreau's ruler from wow. elementary school, from and elementary. on it, yeah, they're like the you know like a, a ruler you use to measure things, yeah, and um, on it were his initials. D.H.T. Yeah. Henry David Thoreau was really David Henry Thoreau. He yeah. switched his names around. And, and uh, you know, one thought about it is, you know, he really was a great writer and he realized how more euphonious his name would be as Henry David than as David Henry. Henry Thoreau, yeah. I did mean, it, I don't know. That exhibition, did it come up about his connection to the pencil business? Yeah, they did talk about that. Yeah, I think Tycho. I think they had that. some of the pencils, if I remember correctly, because yeah. his dad I, had this pencil factory. Yeah, it was a uh, prosperous family. Yeah, he was in some ways almost a kind of trust fund uh, pencil heir. <laughs> well, Emerson at that juncture had a good amount of money, and so he was under Emerson's wing also, obviously, you know, because he owned Walden Pond. Right. You know. Which is a big pond. I went there once and it's, you think of a pond as kind of small. I mean, it's almost a lake. It's sort of like a small lake, right? Yeah, you would think of it more as a lake. Yeah. All right. That was a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, definitely. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.